0: Hello, Uh, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, So we are looking at some of the revisions that Lovecraft uh, wrote or helped write from, I guess, 1929 to 1932, whatever the period of time covered by the stories uh, he published under his name that we looked at before. Uh, I think those are the years, roughly. Uh, The bulk of what we're looking at here are the Zelia Bishop revisions, and there's three of them. We'll also look at um, uh, one more. Uh, called The Trap, uh, that's a Henry Whitehead revision, um, but we'll look at that later. Uh, so this will be a short little series before we get back into some of uh, the letters, specifically the, the volume four of the Selected Letters, um, but first got to deal with uh, these stories. So in the last episode I looked at The Curse of Yeg. the story I'm going to look at today, The Mound, is in some ways almost a sequel to The Curse of Yig. Uh, not in the sense that there's any characters that cross over, but it's definitely in the same universe. We get a lot of mentioning of uh, the Yig curse and the the Yig God. We get more of the mythology behind it. We get much deeper history involved with it. Um, Now, I want to say that when this was written, this was written around the time that he wrote, uh, Lovecraft wrote uh, Whisper in Darkness. So as I talked about in that episode and the following episodes, I, I think Lovecraft was really trying in these years to construct for himself much more of a of of a doing much he's doing much more world building right i really hesitate to talk about a mythos because of course we associate that with the cthulhu mythos which is of course an invention of august or and not lovecraft himself so i don't like to use that term too much although i probably have in the past it's He's definitely world building though, right? And he's building a much larger cosmos With these characters and his ideas from his earlier stories He pieces them together into much bigger tales Literally bigger in the cases of the ones we just looked at And this one, The Mound, is as long as any of those other tales It's, um, I think it's like 70 pages or so, it's 30,000 words It's really a short novel um, And it it kind of fits, it's actually very, it's, it almost works as like a draft of At the Mountains of Madness. In some ways, I think it's better than At the Mountains of Madness. I find it a much more compelling tale. I find The Mountains of Madness drags on a little bit. It's a little, so t- so technical, it doesn't really have that much adventure. It, you know, some of it is just like looking at walls, looking at ice, samples, looking at dead things, dissecting things. It's you know for the payoff of the story there's a lot of, of boring stuff you have to get through to get there the mound is not boring at all the mounding the mound for me is a really really exciting story um we got a we got different levels of history taking place we got the history of of of, of um yoth and and canine and we got this broader cosmic history implied here we also have the history of the American West, this kind of stuff I talked about when we looked at the Curse of Jaeg, the conquest of the West, the interacting of cultures between Indians and settlers, and that whole genocidal history, which culminates in ultimately the the overall conquest of the West, which is, of course, accomplished largely by the time the story is said and written. But we're also then... Given the history of the early days of of Western conquest of this part of the world, which the Spanish conquest, the Coronado expedition, the conquistadors, that gets that becomes part of the story. So there's so many different layers here and it's all really exciting. And actually, the world we observe, it's not a dead world like in the shadow out of time and at the mountains of madness. We're given a dead world Um, here. We're given a dying world. So we see a civilization in its last in its death throes, right? Sometime between the 16th century and the 20th century, this civilization seems to have died out. Um, but we get to see it in the 16th century by our by our calendar, and we see it on its final days. We see it eating itself. We see it consuming itself, and we see it. You know, we it's a way for Lovecraft to really explore his themes of of civilizational decline in ways that's much more Alive, right, and this also allows him to write an adventure story about people, someone trying to escape, basically a type of captivity um, under a lost civilization, right? And uh, obviously, it's it. He was influenced by Bulwer Lytton's *The Coming Race*, which was 1871, fifty years, sixty years before this was written. That book was written, but it has that same concept of kind of an adventure story of people going down into finding an ancient civilization with all its own technology its own culture its own religions its own history and then the interaction between that and the people from the, from the surface coming down right and it's all framed in kind of adventure story he certainly copies that here but I, I think this is actually better than the coming race too it's it's a much more compelling story so um I like every moment of this story to be honest I think there's very very little I not to like and it's it's one I came to last it's it's my favorite of his revisions so far now I haven't read all the revisions yet. There's still a lot of the later revisions I never, I've never I never even skimmed through or don't even know the plot of. Like the trap. The Whitehead revision we'll look at in a few episodes. I haven't even read it yet and I never even I don't even know what's in it. So it'll be completely fresh for me. <clears throat> so it's kind of exciting for me. Looking at some of his stories, his the the core texts, you know, I've read them so many times that they're you know, they've lost some of their their appeal to, at least for now, to, to go back to. But, I you know, the revisions are, are, are really exciting. And this one I had read before, but, you know, I love it. It's, it's great. It's, it's really, really a wonderful story. So anyways, the background to this tale is uh, Zelia Bishop came to him with a very, very bare-bones idea, which was essentially based on, in a similar place as the Curse of Vig was set, I think she, she actually did more work on the Curse of Yig than in this one, it sounds like. Because he said in a letter he wrote like 75% of the Curse of Yig. So that means Zelia Bishop wrote 25%. So she sketched it out much more. This one, um, she just basically gave him a synopsis. Um, and the synopsis was that there's a, basically a ghost hanging around an Indian mound. Sometimes a man, sometimes a woman So sometimes like an Indian, like a male Indian And sometimes like a squaw, right? A female Indian, as they used to call squaw uh, Used to call them squaws Um, I don't know, is that a non-PC term? It's in the text, so Anyways And that's all really the story was And and Lovecraft, you know Took that concept and totally redid it I mean, he, he kind of doesn't really do that In very loose terms, it's there that people are seeing something at this mound. Um, But it's, and it's actually apparently based on a real mound in that part of Oklahoma. Although it's not an Indian mound, it's just as a hill. But in this story, that hill is a actual, you know, connection to some ancient civilization. Maybe not Native Americans, but still an ancient, uh, an old civilization that, that dwells in that part of the world. Of course, just underground. Um, but he took this idea and he expanded this into this novel length work, you know, almost as long as At the Mountains of Madness, a little bit shorter, but, but, you know, you know, as long as some of his longest tales. Um, so yeah, it's impressive. It wasn't published. It was rejected by Weird Tales. Farnsworth Wright rejected it, uh, I'm not quite sure why it was rejected. If it had something to do with economics, or the topic of the story, or the content, or or whatever, I don't know. But it eventually did get published uh, in the November 1940 issue of Weird Tales, um, but in a rich form, and it's 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 been in various print, you know forms of print since then. And of course, now it's it's public domain along with most of this other stuff. So that's the the background of this of this really nice story. But I really got to urge you to read it if you haven't. If it's if you haven't touched these revisions yet, this is this is what we are waiting for. I mean, this, I guess like the Under the Pyramids has that same sense. It's like a really a Lovecraft story, right? It's totally ghost written. Um, it's not just something he revised or gave ideas to or added to like some of the others we looked at. This is really a Lovecraft story and it should be in any proper anthology of his stories, I think. Um, but you know we can't totally discount Zelia Bishop's contribution and in, in, in the core idea perhaps. But it's there seems be the consensus that she didn't do that much besides that. But she gets a she gets an executive producer title or credit or something. So I, I guess I've been uh, going on a bit long on background here, um, but that's okay. Let, let's jump into this tale. Um, You know, I don't want to do more than two episodes on it, um, but, you know, I think I could do more. Um, There's a lot I want to bring up here. So I don't know if I'm going to so much talk about too much of the details of the plot um, and just kind of tell you where the story goes in the first half of it or so. And then I'll pick it up in the second half later on. It, It actually cuts down in the middle pretty nicely because the first half deals with our narrator's story. And the second half deals with the story within the story. So the second half of the story gets us into the 16th century, where we meet our, our secondary narrator. You know, once again, we see Lovecraft being an expert of the nested narrative, uh, a form of storytelling. He mastered in Call of Cthulhu, but has used in other, you know, since then. He's done it in Shadow of Time, he's done it in um, the Curse of Yig actually, this is a very similar structure to the Curse of Yig in that we have a anthropologist, an ethnologist going to this part of the world to study some phenomenon. In this case, it's the Indian Mounds and the mysteries surrounding this Indian Mound. But then we get a, a story within the story. Here it's told through a manuscript. In the Curse of Yig, is was told through a, a doctor. But very, very similar structure. But this is a, a much more d- stretched out, detailed, and elaborate tale. Um... So, um, yeah, let's let's jump in. So the first part—it's the whole story—is in seven chapters. So chapter one is history and folklore. It's again our, our main character, our, or I guess our maybe it's not our new main character, but our narrator. Not, I'm not clear. I, I guess the main character might be this manuscript writer from the 16th century, but you know the one really driving the events of the story, I guess, is is the narrator. So he, he's another ethnographer going to this part of the world, trying to study about the West. And we start out with this wonderful idea about the age of the West, right? And how, and the age of civilizations in the West. And he thinks, well, cultures go back here, you know, Pueblo villages go back to, you know, 2,500 years, but there's some Early cultures going back seventeen to eighteen thousand years, right? I'm not sure when the theory of of how the peopling of North America is like the nice age migration. That's what you learn in you know first grade, right? That it was an ice age migration. Um, and I think that's established. But you know, I think when I learned it it was they always said like thirteen thousand years. And now when you see world history textbooks or anthropology textbooks they they push that back because it seems that there are several migrations right over a much longer period of time and we find older and older sites older and older sites that do go back you know to 17 18,000 years ago right so these numbers that were given is not wrong but that's what kind of fascinates like, the saxographer is that there are cultures that go way way back right so he's interested in finding out about this like a civilization that's older than america of course this is something that very piques lovecraft's interest too because it's something that he's been fascinated with and we can't forget that he wrote a story called you know the trans migration of juan romero transformation of juan romero who remembers something like that but that deals with primordial cultures in the americas as well right but He's exploring this at a time when this civil the, the Native American civilization is under this great stress of the West conquest of the West, right? Native American populations were going down. you had boarding schools, you had cultural genocide, uh, real genocide, I mean, actual murdering out whole villages and things like that. You have the seizure of their land, the forced on reservations, and then ultimately by the by the end of the 19th century, you have like things like the Dawes Act, which was efforts to even dismantle the reservations and push Indians on to become individual landowners, Um, you know, an Indian policy goes back and forth, as you as you may know from your from your history class. Um, But so we got someone studying this who's really a colonial ethnographist ethnographer in a way. Right. He's part of a colonial project just by I mean, where he's from. Right. Um, He's trying to document a civilization that's been lost. Right. and there's all the prejudices and assumptions that these types of people ha- make and 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 you know they're notorious for right you know, i think the you know plenty has been written about orientalism and about uh, how knowledge was created in the er- colonial era and how it's this one-way street or sometimes contested but still generally one way you got the veil and du bois talking about the veil in a different context but it's still the same idea that you kind of have civilization being defined by one direction and ethnographers playing a role in that definition, right? And defining what the terms of civilization are. Um, all right. Um, now, what is the, some of the things he's interested in? Well, he's interested in the Curse of Jaeg story. So, you know, this might just be Lovecraft trying to connect this story to another popular story, right? To help to get it sold, that that might be. of course, Zelie Bishop is also the title author of The Curse of Yig, so it makes sense that it almost could be sold as a sequel to The Curse of Yig. That's maybe what's going on here, but it fits into the story really well. And I think he not only connects the Yig stuff, but he also connects the Cthulhu stuff in a very, very clever way with this respelling he does of Cthulhu, but we'll get to that stuff later on. like I'm still basically on page one of this story. Um, so much to talk about here. Um, anyways, he's he, he goes to explore ghost stories, Indian ghost stories. That's that's his his main interest. And of course, that's what brings him to Binger, this town and the mound. Quote, I've gone into Oklahoma to track down and correlate one of the many ghost tales which were current among white settlers, but which had strong Indian cooperation. And I felt sure an ultimate Indian source. They were very curious, these open-air ghost stories, and though they sounded flat and prosaic and the mouths of white people had earmarks of linkages with some of the richest and obscurest phases of native mythology, right? So um, back to this kind of colonialism, this is like another aspect of, of kind of colonial prejudice, right, that, or the ethnographer's eye, right? That when I study my history, western history right it's a history it's history it's got documents it's you know right no one talks about you know like ethnographers don't study the roman empire really right we don't think of maybe some have but we don't really think of them that way we think that's that's what historians do right because it's documents but when we study pre-modern pre-contact native american history we we, ethnographers have a lot to say about that right and you get this kind of a, a You know, of course, now historians do look at that stuff. What I'm trying to say is ethnographers study what historians think is maybe outside their purview. Right. And one thing, one idea you get and you get this whether people are looking at the Middle East or China, Africa or Native Americans. This is kind of I mean, I'm not talking now. Obviously, scholars now are much more mature about these themes. I'm talking about at this time. Right the turn of the century, you get this idea of this continuity, right? This unending, this changelessness, right? That these civilizations sort of stuck in frozen in time, right? And so their current civilization is almost a window into the past. This goes back to the Enlightenment, right? Where you have the Enlightenment idea of the noble savage. People saying, well, what was it like before government? Well, we can't, we don't remember. And we don't have documents about that. But, oh, we can look at Indians. And Indians, know, you know, Indians kind of never, came to that level of civilization so we can study them and then oh you know noble savage idea sort of comes out of that and that certainly influenced enlightenment political theory right at least as i understand it um so anyways he goes exploring for this folklore i'll try not to uh dig into this too much but there's a lot of different opinions about this so even in this story though you see lovecraft actually dissecting this kind of colonialist assumption i just sort of outlined here by saying there was local opinions were different different indians debated what this meant the tales didn't all correspond but what it had in common we do have kind of a the framework of this story and this is kind of what zelia bishop gave lovecraft as the core idea Quote, the tale, outwardly, was an extremely naive and simple one, and centered in a huge lone mound or small hill that rose above the plain about a mile, a third of a mile west of the village. A mound which some thought a product of nature, but others believed to be a burial place or ceremonial idea constructed by prehistoric tribes. This mound, the villagers said, was constantly haunted by two Indian figures which appeared in alteration: an old man who paced back and forth along the top of the from dawn to dusk, regardless of the weather, with only brief intervals of dis- and disappearance, and a squaw who took his place at night with a blue frame torch that glittered quite continuously till morning. When the moon was bright, the squaw's peculiar figure could be seen fairly plainly, and over half the villagers agreed that the apparition was headless. Quote. So that's the basic story. Now, Lovecraft took this and said, okay, these are guards guarding an ancient civilization. And not only that, they're like deformed slaves mut- mutilated slaves of former humans who intruded on this civilization 500 years ago i mean that's the imagination that went into taking this rather mundane ghost plot which it seems is not bad it would have made a good ghost story i presume but to take that and to create the mound out of this it's really really amazing yeah the more i think about it this is this is i think my favorite of <laughs> Of like the what I would say, like the world building Lovecraft stories. At the Mounds of Madness, Shadow of the Time, The Mound. The ones that really build a, an extra, an extra a non-human civilization up. Whisper in Darkness does a bit of it. This is my favorite of them, actually. Maybe because it does deal with empire in its most uh, direct way. And it still is amazing to me that this only exists because Zillia Bishop wanted it set here and gave him the idea. He probably never would have written a story about the Southwest, about Oklahoma. And we get some of his best stories, right? Two of his best stories from this. So thanks to Zillia Bishop for like pushing his boundaries of his imagination. Because, you know. Wow, what would he have written? About? I mean, I know, what would he have written about if, if he had been pushed to write a story about China or or India to really explore what was going on in the Juan Romero with the Hindu ring or explore Africa beyond just what he did in the, 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 the art, the, 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 German story, the guy who ancestor married a, a gorilla, you know, you could tell he could have done something really great with that. And, you know, from his letters, he has ideas. He has ideas for some of this more this broader world, and I, and I I think it's a good thing that other people have sort of built on Lovecraft's themes and explored some of these areas. Um, and I say that I haven't read all the revisions. Maybe he does get to some of those places. Some of the other revisions. All right. Um. So, anyways, this ethnographer hunkers down in in Binger, which is a small town, five hundred people, and he starts to collect local stories from from both white people and Indians. So he talks both to Indians and white settlers, pioneers. So in that way, it kind of parallels the Curse of Yig too, where we have both white settlers, pioneers, and Native Americans engaging in the same kind of mythology and thinking about the same mythology, right? And local legends. And we know it's connected to Yig. We have a little bit on class here and that the, a lot of the population of this town are what are called quote, curious loafers, kind of low class, frontiersmen, kind of bummy types. But the local stories filter on, and we start to get specific stories starting in 1891 of people who actually go and investigate the mound. The first of these is a guy named Heaton. I mention him because he kind of comes up later on in the story. He's like a plot point later on, um, kind of connects everything together. But in 1891, he goes to investigate the mound, and he comes back a babbling idiot, talking about the great old ones, talking about Shubnigareth, and the children of Tulu. So this is our first reference of Tulu. Uh, Tulu will come up a lot. And this is basically the term that these, uh, these, this civilization uses for Cthulhu, right? It's just another twist on Cthulhu. It's not that hard to, if you read it, you might not notice it, but when you hear it spoken, it's obvious this is Cthulhu, right? And, and then he makes it really obvious when he says it's later on in the story that it's octopus-faced. But he he incorporates the Cthulhu mythos here too. But, anyways, he's babbling about this stuff, and they just say, oh, he went nuts. He became the village idiot for eight years and died in an epileptic fit. So, that's the first sort of story we get. Then we get, I think there's others, but the next clear one we get is in 1915. Um, Yes, it's the, yeah, like the, by 1915, the legendary of '91 had faded into the commonplace and the unimaginative, it became legend. Which I think is a great theme too. Very interesting that even in this modern era, at the local level, things become mythology pretty quickly. Um, you know, local mythology, and we still do this, right? Like, as kids, do this all the time when they create mythologies about homes. There might be some, you know, this—that's where a witch lives, or that's where a murder took place. There, you must have done this stuff as when you were a kid. Hopefully, you you kind of had this imagination and played around this way. But there might be maybe some story you heard or some truth in in something that you base your mythology off of, right? That's what sort of happened here. But eventually, I guess it's in 1916, other people go there. And this is a Captain Lawton um, and others. And they also come back, uh, you know, babbling and mad by this. Um we got mentions of the Great War and the impact of that. Um, so we get a bunch of stories here. This is all in Chapter 1. Chapter 1 is is, is quite rich in talking and just building up the local history of this town of Binger and its relationship with the mound. And it seems what happens is people know to kind of stay away from this mound because bad things happen to, to people there. And it's somehow connected to the curse of Yig. We know this also, the Indians also seem to know this because the indians warn about it and we're also told here they on at fall time they do certain rituals which we know from the curse of yig is something that they they engaged in to protect themselves from the yig curse i, I you know it's like if you just read this right after the curse of yig it's so easy to see these connections um quote they went out in a september afternoon about the time The Indian tom-toms began their incessant annual beating over the flat, red, dusty plains. Nobody watched them, and their parents did not become worried about their non-return for several hours. Then came an alarm and searching party and another resignation to the mystery of silence and doubt. Um, So so it's another missing people, right? Now, one of these uh, survivors of this expedition, he tries to kill himself. His name is Ed Clay. Well, he does kill himself, he puts a bullet his head with his pistol but he left a note and the note says this this is like the last in a series of ill-fated explorers to the mound for God's sake never go near that mound it is part of some kind of world so devilish and old it cannot be spoke about about me and Walker went and was took into the things just melted at times and made up again and the whole world outside was helpless alongside what they can do they want live forever young as they like and you can't tell if they are real men or just ghosts. And what they do can't be spoke about. And this is only one interest entrance. You can't tell how big the whole thing is. After what we've seen, I don't want to live anymore. France was nothing besides this. Quote. And he kills himself. And he's a survivor of the war, right? He says, like, this was worse than France. And if you know about the horrors of World War One, which, of course, Lovecraft was aware of. You know, I know he wanted to fight, but he certainly was aware of how horrific it was by this point you know he's you know there was enough knowledge of just the depths of terror of that war and the millions who came back broken in mind and, and body and to say that what I saw there in France was not as bad as what I saw here is, is, is bold um, <clears throat> and they find they do a, an autopsy on this guy Ed Clay and they find his organs were transposed left to right and this was not matching his normal medical records. It's, he's not a mutant. Something happened to him that his body was actually um, experimented on. Um, so anyways, all of this is in Chapter 1. Chapter 1 is really, really wonderful just for exploration of folklore. Now, again, you could say, well, this is just Lovecraft doing this again. He did it in The Whisper in Darkness. He did it in a way in Shadow Variants Mouth, you know. It's structurally kind of similar, right? In that you start with the folklore and then you 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 kind of get to the, the real explanation, of what's behind it, right? But I like it. I, I love that stuff. I, I think that's it's really nice. I, I love when you see Lovecraft playing with these different academic disciplines, right? Like in at the Moments of Madness. It's it's about Biology and geology and, you know, climate science and things like that are, are, you know, these are not these are not experts in ethnography and mythology. They may read the Necronomicon or eventually they read it, but that's not really their thing. Their thing is geology or whatever. Uh, You know, in the Peabody, you have like they go into psychology, right? Psychology for in the shadow over time. I mean, psychology becomes the discipline that he's able to explore. So I like when, when Lovecraft does this, and I think it's done really well in this, this chapter of the mound. Um, so then we get to chapter two, and I, I guess we can speed up a little bit. Um, this is, even though there's a lot of good stuff here, I mean, there's so much good stuff. There's such a rich tale. Um, but this is really him, after getting kind of collecting the local stories, preparing for his own expedition to the mound. And the heart of this is a conversation he has with uh, this old Indian named Gray Eagle who basically warns him, don't go there. You don't want anything to do with it. But he does uh, um, give him this thing around his neck, this like necklace thing, this piece of quote-unquote unknown workmanship. And, you know, he kind of investigates it and he has other people look at it and it seems to be maybe it's a meteorite. We're kind of reminded of the color of space because we have scientists who can't kind of figure out what this metal is, which is, of course, what happened in that story. Um, so here's what he writes with Gray Eagle's permission. I later had expert historians, anthropologists, geologists, and chemists pass carefully upon the disc, but from then I attained only a course of bafflement. It defied either classification or analysis. The chemists called it an amalgam of unknown metallic elements of heavy atomic weight. And one geologist suggested that the substance must be meteoric in origin shot from unknown gulfs of interstellar space. So it's, of course, a a shout out to that story. Um, The color of time, color of space. Um, So anyways, he then goes to the mound. So this is still chapter two. He goes to the mound and begins digging around. And he, we get a little details of what he brings with them. It's important just for establishing that they're, they're moved later on in the story. Um, but he brings like with a machete and he's got like a shovel. he has got, of course, the, his thing around the necklace, his necklace. In fact, what happens is he starts like digging around and looking around, but it's he's pulled down. His neck is pulled down. He's attracted to the ground by this necklace. And that's where he starts to dig. He's got a trench knife that he starts digging around and he starts using the machete and stuff and he digs up and he finds a cylinder, about a foot long cylinder, like a, a metal cylinder. And in there is, is well, the whole thing on the outside has all these strange hydrographics, uh, strange writing that he can't decipher, even though he's an academic and skilled in many languages. Um, but there's some connection between that and Gray Eagle's charm that he gave him. That's what sort of attracted him to that. That's how he knew where to find it. Right? It's kind of convenient for the story because Lovecraft needs this narrator to find this thing, and the charm sort of does it. But it also shows that there's long been connections between the surface and the civilization underground. That's why these metals attract. That that it's a it's a thin barrier, right? Even though some people and some creatures some people that live underground definitely would want it to be a stronger barrier it is kind of pliable right and that's the whole ghost thing right so the ghosts are intermediaries guards between these two worlds right so the barrier is sort of thin and which is, is of course the heart of the fear right the cosmic core only works if that barrier between that unknown cosmic reality and our mundane reality is, is kind of thin if if it's just if it's not knowable and it's out there it doesn't matter to us right it's only when it's knowable to us in some way that it becomes terrifying and horrible all right anyways what he finds inside here is a spanish text um written in spanish and it's dated back to 1545 that's the date of it And it's called, it's all in Spanish, but thankfully our narrator can read Spanish and read 16th century Spanish, which I presume is different, right? Just the same way 16th century English isn't like modern English, and same thing with German. I think it's actually acknowledged in the story somewhere that he has, yeah, it's like, it's the Spanish, albeit the formal pompous Spanish of the long departed day. Anyways, and here's what we get. Here's the name of it, the title page on this yellow scroll. The narrative of Panofilo de Zamacona el Nunez, gentleman of Lacurna in Austerias, concerning the subterranean world of Cynthian, A.D. 1545. That's the title. Now, he ends up giving it this name in English called Kine. Here it's, it's spelled different. I guess it's like the Spanish. Effort at transliterating this foreign word or this alien word into into European languages, but our narrator does you know translate it to something else. Now, this date, of course, peaks is interesting because this is around the time of where you know what Spanish were around here at the time. Well, it was Coronado's expedition, right? So, as again, probably you know from your history classes, uh, after Cortez conquered Mexico. There was this ex- a large number of conquistadors who came to the Americas to try to get rich, try to exploit Native American wealth. The idea is Cortes got rich off the Tignoi clan, capital of the Aztec empire. We can get rich too, but it's finding you know, another city, right? The lost cities of gold, Cibola, that kind of stuff. And so they started searching for it. And Coronado is one of these, well, I don't want to use the word tragic because these were imperialist genocidal bastards, but you know, the expedition was utter total failure, right? In part because they were being sent on wild goose chases through the American Southwest. Of course, they do discover the Grand Canyon, right? That's another notable thing about it. Um, but he, our narrator figures out that he's probably associated with this Coronado expedition. Um, and then he so he takes this and he begins, he takes this back to his camp. Does he go all the way back to Binger? No, I, that's that's a bit weird. I think that's a bit of a mistake in the story. He should go back to Binger and study this text for like, like months, right? Because he's got to translate it. I think he Lovecraft has him doing this like at his with his electric lamp in the can, in the tent or something ridiculous like that. But you know, I'm telling you, if I find a, an ancient text in a different language that I happen to read, but it's really old, I'm not gonna do it there. I'm gonna go all the way back to my hotel room. Or a library or something. And it would he's only, it's not that far away. Binger's only like 500, it's like half a kilometer away. There, there's times they're even like sending messages by like light and shouting at, uh, across that distance. Ah. Uh, anyways, yeah, he, he begins to work on the translation of this text. Right? And he finds all sorts of things that he's somewhat familiar with. Uh, he does make the connection between Tulu and Cthulhu, um, which he, he has some awareness of, as most characters in Lovecraft University seem to have some awareness of the Cthulhu mythology, but also Yeg, Quetzalcoatl, Kulakan and other kind of Native American gods. that are, and Of course, we've seen the discussion of the connection between Yeg and Quetzalcoatl in the previous story. But anyways, um, that's, yeah, I was going to talk about another chapter. I was going to talk about chapter three, but this really gets into uh, Zamakona's story. So there's seven chapters overall. Chapter one, two, and seven is basically the, the narrator story. Three, four, five, and six are Zamakona's story. So that's what I'll do. So I'll, I'll kind of group it all together. So in the Next episode, I'll talk about the adventures of Zamakono, which really is a nice adventure story. It's, it's, you know, this explorer who wants to get rich and starts going, he goes rogue. You know, he gets a lead from Indian, local Indians. He goes, searches out this place. He finds this lost civilization. He, you know, gets basically married to a fairly beautiful princess. But it gets bored and wants to escape. And he, after learning about the culture, he wants to escape. It's like Taipee, right? It, it's, it's, it reminds me of Melville's Taipei uh, in that sense. But um, It's a great like little adventure story. And it's actually tense because, you know, you see the threat building. And again, it's just like Taipei, right? In Taipee it's the same thing. That You get this feeling that maybe they'll eat us eventually. Something bad is going to happen. I got to get out of here. And then you try to escape, right? And the thing is, he... In Taipei, escapes, but here he doesn't escape. He, he becomes that guard, the ghost we saw in the first chapter. But I'll talk about all this next time in the next episode, where I'll cover Zamacona's story, which I sort of basically just laid out, but also, most importantly, the civilization that he observes, because that civilization gets to the heart of Lovecraft's depiction and ideas about a dec- decadent, declining civilization. So that's it. So, yeah, one more episode on The Mound. I promise just one more. And, but it's an important one. So I hope you'll join me next time as I continue my investigation of the works of H.P. Lovecraft. In the meantime, if you have anything to share about The Mound, uh, send me an email at 100 at gmail.com. I would appreciate hearing from you. You can also leave uh, like a review on iTunes. Um, and share this around to people who might be interested in exploring uh, this text that's by Lovecraft Uh, Lovecraft and Zillia Bishop in this case Lovecraft did have the biggest hand in in constructing it but I say it again one of his best tales and worthy of inclusion in any uh, in the mind of any Lovecraft completionist um, for sure so again thanks for listening I'll see you next time